0: I have a question. How do you get down off an elephant? Oh, so I said, What? <laughs> when I was straight out of junior high in high school for the first time, all of us little movies went to gym class. We were basically waiting to be pummeled in dodgeball by the jocks. <laughs> I don't know if you remember those days. The coaches used this as a perk for the muscle bound Neanderthals, you know. Their chance to beat up on the skinny little kids without getting in trouble. That's really what dodgeball was all about. So, you know, to pass the time while we're waiting for them to come in and pummel us, this kid says, want to hear a joke? How do you get down off an elephant? I said, I don't know, how? And he says, you don't, silly. You get down off a goose. (laughs) So he laughs uproariously. He thought he was really funny. But I didn't laugh. I was perplexed which he eventually noticed, and then he repeated, Off a goose! You know, right? So a little background here. my, I had nine siblings, and my dad was a teacher. And that was back when the state school teachers, they barely made enough to live on. So I never heard of down jackets, or down blankets, or anything like that. There's no way we could have afforded that sort of thing. So what could I say? I said, How could you ride a goose? And and what would be so hard about getting down off one? <laughs> Well, you could imagine the look on his face. <laughs> I mean, he thought I was from some other planet. And, and I guess I really was. <laughs> you know, down like, like in a jacket or a blanket. What's down? <laughs> when you have to explain a joke, it's just no longer funny. <laughs> and this kid was pretty frustrated that his joke fell flat on its face. Down, like from a goose. What, what's that? Down, the little feathers that keep the goose warm! The poor guy had to, he had, he was forced to explain the whole deal to me. So his joke failed because I didn't have enough knowledge to understand the communication. I had no handle, no connection, no No way to grasp what he was saying. Last week, we were witness to this same thing happening to a guy who had a lot of knowledge, but not enough for this amazing truth. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? (laughs) You know, what things? Okay, well, let's recap the conversation that would change Nicodemus forever. Our confounded friend was educated wealthy, powerful, and at the top of the social ladder in Israel. He'd seen Jesus' signs and wanted to know more about Him. So he came to talk with Jesus. When he did, he was probably expecting to be on a level with Jesus. I mean, actually, who are we kidding? He was probably thinking he would be above Jesus. (laughs) Jesus was kind of a country bumpkin, right? And he found out He was not. (laughs) In fact, Nicodemus was shocked at Jesus' statements, overwhelmed by Jesus' statements. So what things? Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Spiritual birth. You know, wait a minute, Nick, that's thing, not things. And no, we, we got to go with the prof on this one. It's things. Dr. Nick understood enough to realize that born again meant that everything would change in, if this were true. He said these instead of this because he realized his entire very neatly packaged worldview was about to be seriously disrupted. He had always thought that his birth into the Jewish community meant he was good enough, all by itself. But Jesus is saying, no, it's not. So he asks, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? The teacher of Israel. In the Greek, there's, there's this way to specifically emphasize the word, the teacher. You're the teacher in Israel, and you're this dense I mean, can you almost feel Nicodemus getting red in the face? So why was Jesus so blunt? Why did he rebuke Nicodemus so strongly for not being able to see this truth? Should he have known? Should our brother have been able to understand spiritual birth? Well, what about some of the guys listening in on this conversation? We're talking the disciples here, like John, who recorded this conversation. After three more years, they still didn't understand. Through the crucifixion, after his resurrection, they still didn't get it. They were still asking silly questions about this life. Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? To Israel. In three years of intense training with Jesus and watching him die and rise again, if that didn't help them to see what God was doing, maybe the point is that this would be easy for no one. Not even Nicodemus. So we're back to our question then. Why the strong rebuke? Probably to seize Nicodemus' attention, to arrest this academic's thoughts and redirect them where Jesus wanted them. How did Nicodemus take it? Well, we can be pretty sure that Nick has already begun to suspicion that Jesus is as far above him as he is above a grade school student. <laughs> And let us not forget, Nicodemus is the best, the most highly educated man in the nation. He is the teacher of Israel. But Jesus knows something much more important about Nicodemus. Jesus knows Nicodemus will one day sacrifice everything for him. Nicodemus will eventually abandon his exalted position with the Sanhedrin to honor Jesus at his burial. And it's going to take a lot to prepare this man if he's going to make it. (laughs) So Jesus jerks the reins pretty hard. And for Nicodemus, well, have you ever watched... Our grandkids haven't been to the beach much and it's always fun. You take a small child and and they go out and they stand in the waves and the first wave comes up and it knocks them on their keister, right? (laughs) Right? And if they're not the crying type, some cry. But they sit there kind of dazed. I don't know if you see. They just are dazed. And then the next wave comes and it washes right over them. And they blink and they sputter and then they, they see the next wave. <laughs> they keep coming. And they just, if they're the right personality, they just sit there and say, oh, fine, just wash over me again. I'm wet anyway. Let's just do this thing. <laughs> I mean, they, they're really, It's fun to watch some of the kids do that. And I think that's where Nicodemus is. One more intellectual and spiritual wave to crash over him. But more was coming. <laughs> truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and we bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. Truly, truly. There we go again. This is the third time Jesus used this device to endorse his own teaching. So Nicodemus braces himself for the next wave. We speak we have seen who is we. (laughs) A lot of people think Jesus is trying to teach Nicodemus the truth of the Trinity. And it's possible, maybe even probable, but it's so early in Jesus' mission. It's much more likely that Jesus is expecting Nicodemus to hear the royal we, that Jesus is, in one more way, claiming absolute authority. And, since that idea goes hand in hand with learning, Nicodemus, in Nicodemus' mind, he understands that Jesus is claiming that he is the only one who understands. Since, obviously, Nicodemus does not. <laughs> okay, we speak of what we have seen, who's you. Of course, he could just mean Nicodemus. But the play on words probably points to the entire Sanhedrin which would mean we're back to a point we made last week, this was a warning to Nicodemus that the you in his life would have to change if he was to follow Jesus. Now remember, Jesus knows this ruler of the Jews is going to do it. This man will sacrifice everything for him in just three short years. So he's caring for Nicodemus by preparing him, by getting his mind to think about the relationships he has and the position that he holds. In other words, you does, in fact, mean Nicodemus. (laughs) Individually, personally, you are not accepting what I saw, just like your Sanhedrin buddies, and you need to correct that. We know who you is, we know who we is. Now let's get to the subject. What is it that Jesus knows and sees? To what does he bear witness? We, and Nicodemus, don't really get to know. But Jesus explains a little bit as he continues with his question. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Now, whoa, wait a minute. How can this carpenter know heavenly things? I'm pretty sure now that Nicodemus by now has probably given up on thinking of Jesus as simply a carpenter. But let's face it. You know, they're not sitting in the storied halls of Oxford. Well, the temple in their case. And Jesus is manifestly a working man. His clothes, his build, his haircut, everything about him screamed common man. Except these incredible words. I know Nicodemus has grasped that Jesus is way more than he thought he was coming into this thing. Still, this has got to have jarred him. But let's come back to this whole heaven thing in a moment. What about earthly things? Well, he could just mean the physical birth he was talking about. But that doesn't really make sense since he was just using that as a contrast to the spiritual birth. It seems clear that Jesus is saying this born-again thing is an earthly thing. Let me explain. The new spiritual birth is a manifestation of God's grace in our physical world. and it has as its cause something in the very nature of God, something in heaven. Nicodemus probably did understand that there would be a heavenly origin for the earthly application of God's grace. Greeks thought that the physical was a reflection of the divine, although their divine would be very different from that of the monotheistic Jews or later Christians. The Jews did understand that God is spirit, heavenly, and all physical things were created by, have their origination in Him. So everything will reflect His character and nature. That He grasped. But, Jesus says, if you don't understand the application of God's grace, how will you ever understand the cause? And then this claim, that Jesus does in fact understand heavenly things regardless of Nicodemus' limitations. So back to those waves washing over Nicodemus. Here's here's a monster. Jesus continue, continues, No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Wow! Now maybe you're saying, what? Now let me assure you, in this short statement, Jesus rocks our friend's understanding. It goes like this, have you ever had a conversation with a group of people who are all involved in something about which you know pretty much nothing? Which would be fishing for me. <laughs> I was standing there one time, this guy's talking about some specific fish in some particular place, can't remember it all, and he says, I used a spinner. And all the other fishermen said, What? Are you kidding me? I'm thinking, What's a spinner? <laughs> not sure what that means. I mean, I have some idea of what a spinner is, but no clue as to why it's such a big deal in that situation. Same as getting down off a goose. You know, I didn't have a handle. But Nicodemus has the handles. He knows where Jesus is going. The more anyone learns, the better they are able to learn. And you need fewer words to understand what's going on. For those fishermen, I used to spinner set a world of things that I had no idea of. Nicodemus had the training to understand the depths of Jesus' claims. And, well, unless a person's a theologian or at least a very advanced Bible student, what Jesus is claiming may be difficult to understand. So, let's say it clearly. Jesus is claiming to be the Messiah, the chosen one of God. This comes from the phrase, Son of Man. It would have reminded Nicodemus of Daniel's prophecy. Let's read it. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away in his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Since Nicodemus knew this scripture and, and all that surrounds it, he knew Jesus was claiming to be the Messiah. But there was even more, because Jesus redefines Nicodemus' understanding of who the Messiah is. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Most, maybe all, believing Jews thought that the Messiah would be a great man, like David, like Moses. But Jesus here claims much, much more. He claims pre-existence. That He descended from heaven. Jesus understood, Nicodemus understood, all the Jews understood, as we do, that we originate at conception. That new life is an event, like an explosion. There was a time when these two chromosome halves were floating around and they were really nothing. And then suddenly... They met and boom! That which is you suddenly became a reality. The DNA that defines you today, that is copied in every single cell of your body, came into existence in a single moment. You didn't exist before that, and suddenly you were. But Jesus is claiming that who He is is different. Yes, He's human, but He also came down from heaven. He is the eternal person of the Son. Jesus is claiming to be the Messiah and that the Messiah is God in human form. Now, Nicodemus knew all the Bible. He probably read it literally hundreds of times. Uh, Verses must have been... Screaming through his mind what Moses wrote. Ezekiel and Daniel and Isaiah and Joel and more and more. It goes on and on. He must have been trying to gather all of that. Everything he knew about the Messiah was flooding his mind. So I'm thinking Jesus paused. And he let Nicodemus' reeling mind catch up. How long before he looked up in wonder at Jesus? Maybe ten minutes. Maybe thirty minutes. I don't know. But no matter how wondrous and overwhelming it seemed, none of those waves could match the tsunami that was about to wash over our friend. A truth that overwhelms specifically because of what we've just learned. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. When the price of love is drawn as Brian Duncan sings, three nails, one son. Could Nicodemus know that the cost of eternal life for him, spiritual birth for him, would be the Messiah crucified? I mean, to us, lifted up seems a strange statement. But this is Nicodemus. What would he have thought? What, What did Jesus mean? We have to go back almost a millennia and a half to the Exodus that first generation that came out of Egypt uh, had a great many problems. <laughs> in spite of tremendous miracles that they witnessed with their own eyes, they constantly complained. Miracles, I mean, every single morning God gave them a miracle in the form of food, manna, that simply appeared in the ground like frost. God gathered it up, pick it up and eat it. Or they could bake it or they, whatever they wanted to do with it. Every night, quail just fluttered into camp and they just had to go grab them and cook them. That was it. And then there's the fact that every moment from the time they left Egypt until the moment that we're about to read about, there was a pillar of cloud leading them by day and a pillar of fire at night. Every moment of their day was a miracle. Constant, continuous, daily miracles. But... Ah, for a stiff necked people, that was not enough. From Mount Hor they set out by way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Eden. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Miraculous, worthless food. <laughs> then the Lord sent fiery servants among the people, and they bit the people so that. Many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that He may take the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord took the serpents away, right? Well, that's what we'd expect, isn't it? And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. What? <laughs> So Moses made a bronze serpent and he set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. What kind of strange solution is this? Now, of course, we can see that God caused the people to pray by allowing the poisonous snakes to harass them. But to answer it in this way? You know, why? I think we must notice the tie to sin. The live serpent's bite was a result of sin. If you sin, you have to look. They had sin in their lives and the bronze serpent lifted up on the pole was a reminder of their sin and God's salvation. Requiring them to look made no sense except to show faith in and reliance on God. Well, why not just forgive their sins? Because sin isn't just the result of evil. Sin was the state of their hearts. God left the live serpents and the bronze serpent there because sin was still there. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. Jesus knew what He meant by lifted up. He would die on a cross. For our sake, He made Him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus would become sin for us in our place so that we could join Him in His perfect righteousness. Jesus' brutal murder was necessary because there is still sin in us and in this world God does not take the sin out of this world yet but he made a way to give us that which is necessary for eternal life in spite of our sin I mean would Nicodemus get this would he make the connection lifted up is a strange statement certainly it arrested his attention and I think he understood even then for sure he did later And I think he might have understood more. You see, there's one more part to the story of the serpent Moses lifted up that he knew quite well. It concerns the actions of Hezekiah. The Bible says King Hezekiah trusted in God more than any king in Israel ever had. More even than David and Solomon. And what action then did he take? He cleared the land of evil practices. In the third year of Hoshea, son of Elah, king of Israel, Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that, his, that David, his father, had done. He removed the high places and broke the pillars and cut down the Asherah, and he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the people of Israel had made offerings to it. It was called Nahushtan, Wait, that priceless artifact, he destroyed that. The very thing that was supposed to make them look to God for salvation, they began to worship as if it had power in and of itself. They even gave it a name. They had begun to worship the symbol instead of the God in whom they should have had faith. They were supposed to be looking to God through the symbol, but instead they made a God of the symbol. So Hezekiah, Israel's most godly king, had to destroy this bronze serpent that the very hands of none other than Moses had touched. A centuries-old heirloom of the Exodus. Physical proof of the care of God for the children of Israel. And he had to destroy it. Because people look to the symbol rather than the reality. Nicodemus must have grasped that many, even of the priests, were doing the same in his time. The temple became the focus rather than the God of the temple. The nation of Israel was exalted rather than the God of Israel. The Passover was celebrated rather than the deliverance of the God of the Passover. Today, many people love the symbol of Christianity, love and caring and tolerance. They'll worship that, But not the God of Christianity. There are even those who are happy to enjoy church. Not here, but in some places. (laughs) But they don't really want to actually commit their lives to Jesus. They spend their whole lives pretending because they don't know the difference between the image and the reality. Until finally they forget there is a reality. Church people. We're talking church people. You're not sure that can be true? Jesus himself said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. The kingdom of heaven is Jewish speak for eternal life. And you must see Jesus lifted up to attain eternal life. This reality is the tsunami that overwhelmed our good friend Nicodemus nearly 2,000 years ago. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. When the price of love is drawn, three nails, one son could Nicodemus have known that the cost of eternal life would be the Messiah crucified? Jesus' purpose in coming was to give eternal life. Not a life where we still have sin in and all around us, a life that requires a cross. No, He will remove sin entirely and give us life through the cross. He will then... Give us a life without the pain and the death and the evil that sin invariably delivers. Eternal life. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be His people, and God Himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. more." For the former things have passed away. But please understand, this life is freely given only to those who look up to Jesus on the cross. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Death came to those who would not look up at the serpent that Moses set up. What does it do just to look at a stupid bronze snake and a pole? I need some real help here. They could not see beyond the physical. They would not strain to see the spiritual. So God would not give them courage and faith and they would be detestable, murderers, sexually immoral and worse and worse. And all that was left for them was the second death. If only they were willing to look to Jesus, He would have wiped away their tears. He would have taken away death and mourning and crying and pain and given them eternal life. This is the will of my Father, Jesus said, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. And I will raise Him up on the last day. You may know someone. You may be someone who wants to know how do I look on the Son and believe? How do we experience Plain sight beyond seeing. There's much to it, of course, but we can boil it down to these three simple statements. First, admit that you have sin in your life. Pretending we're okay is just refusing to look in the face of reality. You know, if you've been bitten by a snake, the first thing you have to do to get help is to admit that you need help. But then you have to know where to look for help. To look to Jesus is to believe that he came to save those who will look up. And wait a minute, if Jesus wants to forgive me, why can't he just do it? Why all this fooling around with life and death? Just do it. You know, how much did Nicodemus know compared to Jesus? How much do you know compared to the creator of the universe? If he says, Look to the sacrifice of Jesus and believe, then just do it. <laughs> do it. And if you truly look up and believe, then you will commit all that you are and have to Him as your Lord, your Master. That doesn't sound very American, I get that. (laughs) Yeah, I know, it's not about being American or being anything else. It's about people desperately ill with sin who see beyond this life. I mean, is your life really so great that you want to keep it just like it is? (laughs) Look to Jesus, admitting your need, believing He can save you, and committing every part of your life to Him. Um, I should point out, (laughs) in this life, we'll still have sin. (laughs) And we'll still need to look to Him again and again and again. But there is a day coming when all these things will pass away. And everything will be made new. Can you see it? Do you have sight beyond seeing? If you do, you see there is only one way to enter the perfect eternal life you know awaits. Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, the one lifted up. Father... It is incomprehensible to us how very much you love us to send your son. The cost to you, I mean the cost to your son, but the cost to you is so enormous. It seems amazing that you did it. It was your plan to save us. You had our names written down before you ever made the world. And now you've drawn us to you and you've helped us to commit our lives to you. You do all these things for us. And we thank you. Lord, there are a few that we know. Just the very few each of us have in our hearts and our minds that burns in us. Oh, that they would know. However it works, Lord. Help us to be one to make a difference in their lives and bring someone in their lives if we're not the one to talk to them. But help us to be faithful, to be ready for those you do bring us to so that we can talk to them about your great love and the cost of him who is lifted up. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.